quiet our hearts before you, we pray that you would open the understanding of our hearts, Lord. These truths, uh, we need your help, Holy Spirit. They're spiritually discerned, so we need your spirit to help us understand. Father, we acknowledge that the word of God is, didn't have its origin in any man, but as the scriptures say of themselves, they were God breathed into existence. And so we take them for what uh, they are, the word of God. May the word of God have its way in our hearts, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. The Bible, the Bible, the book. That's what the word Bible means. It's made up of 66 books, 1,189 chapters, 31,102 verses. 40 different God-inspired authors wrote as God gave them utterance by the Holy Spirit over a span of 1,500 years. But yet, amazingly, you check out those 66 books and you will find one cohesive, unified message. There is a theme in the Bible from cover to cover. Now... Of those 31,102 verses, there is a king. There is one verse that rises to the top in every nation, in every language. Wherever you go in the world, you can ask another Christian about this verse, and they have it committed to memory. And you're probably trying to guess what verse that could be. You know why it's so famous and popular is because... Of those 31,000 verses, this verse manages to capture the essence in a nutshell that everything God is wanting us to know in a simple verse. Now, if you think you know what that verse is, I'm going to give you on three, right? And then we're all going to say that verse reference, just the reference, okay? Ready? How many of you think you know what I'm talking about? Uh-huh. <laughs> All right, ready. Three, two, one. John 3:16. What? <laughs> you guys all should have been raising your hands. That was pretty good. And do you see it rises to the top there? Because, man, can you imagine 31,000 verses? And we needed all of those details. But to be able to, and most scholars believe, Jesus was speaking in John chapter 3. At least he started speaking in the beginning of it. And, and uh, by verse 16, he's going to sum up the whole thing in one simple sentence. That's the beauty of the gospel. It's easy. It's not hard to find. God, our Savior, wants all people everywhere to come to the knowledge of the truth and be saved. And so we have these beautiful ways to sum up the, the saving grace of our Lord, to make it easy so that nobody will perish. That's really the point of it. And this verse, man, is it ever popular? You know, uh, wherever you go, I mean, if you go to a stadium, you know, you may happen to go to a football game or a baseball game, and there's always the guy there. <laughs> it doesn't matter if it's a golf game. It doesn't matter if you're playing hockey. It doesn't matter if it's a, a, a freeway overpass. It doesn't matter if it's a license plate or a T-shirt or a bumper sticker. That's the verse that's going to tell you what you need to know. That's all you get. That's all you need. And, you know, we see it everywhere. We see it on the, right here. We see it under the cup at in and out Come on, they're owned by Christians who are obsessed with wanting other people to share the love of God. And so if you're going to uh, drink from the cup, you might as well take a look underneath and there. 
you have the verse. And then there's this crazy star athlete, Tim Tebow. He did that. And so many millions of people saw that, that they Googled that. It was the number one search on Google that evening. And uh, boy, I, I even have an interview. It's only 30 seconds, but it's very fun. It's of him talking about what he did and what happened as a result. Let's play the clip here. It's a quick. I want to ask you about one part of the book. When you talk about on your eye black, when you wrote 316 yeah. in the Bible, can you tell the people about the uncanny coincidence that happened in a press conference a few years later? Yeah, well, we were playing for the national championship um, in college on January 8, 2009, and I decided to wear John 316 under my eyes. And during the game, uh, 94 million people Googled John 316, and it was a pretty cool moment. Well, exactly three years later, we happened to be playing the Pittsburgh Steelers in the first round of the playoffs when I was with the Denver Broncos. And I didn't even know that it was exactly three years later. It was ja uh, January 12th or January 8, 2012, exactly three years later to the day. I just went out there and tried to do whatever I could to win a playoff game. And afterwards, I'm going into the press conference because I love talking to the media. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, our PR guy jumps in front of me and says, Timmy, did you realize what happened? I was like, yeah, we just beat the Steelers. We're going to play the Patriots. And he was like, no, did you realize what happened? I was like, all right, Patrick, what's up? He said, it's exactly three years later from the day that you wore John 316 under your eyes. I was like, oh, that's really cool. He said, no, I don't think you realize what happened. During the game, you threw for 316 yards. Your yards per rush were 3.16. Your yards per completion were 31.6. The ratings for the game were 31.6. And the time of possession was 31.6. And during the game, 90 million people had already Googled John 316. It was the number one trending thing on Facebook and Twitter. And a lot of people will say, it's coincidence. I say big God. Amen. <laughs> I say big God, too. Well, by now, some of you are saying, well, what's up with this verse? Well, you know what? We are going to say that verse together. Are you ready? It's going to be on the screen. Why don't you help me out, all of us reading? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Well, some of us are so used to saying it with a different word, everlasting instead of eternal. Or, yeah, so praise the Lord. There it is. One verse that says it all. And if we were to take that verse apart, let's say on some Sunday morning, let's say Easter Sunday, <laughs> we might take a look and, and notice that it packs a punch, man. There are seven ideas there. For one, you've got God, the greatest being. So loved the world, the highest motive, that he gave his only begotten son, the grandest, most generous gift, that whosoever the widest welcome, the widest invite. Whoever believes in him, the easiest escape, should not perish, the most dramatic rescue, but have everlasting life, the most valuable, priceless possession a person could ever have. Let's start with God, the supreme being, the almighty I like how Genesis begins. Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created us, the world, the earth, the sun, moon, and stars, plant life, all the animals and every living thing. Stepped back and said, it's all good. Now, what I like about it is, is that there is no argumentation, no debate. It's just a simple, sweet presupposition that everybody who's picked up the book already acknowledges what we all understand as human beings, that God is, he exists, and he's the source of everything we see around us. I just find that very interesting. We don't need an argument to when, who created God? How did God get here? Well, that's God is the beginning, we'll find out later. He is self-existing. He is self-perpetuating. Nobody creates God because God was and is and is to come. And of course, 
we're going to learn a lot about him. Uh, we'll learn about that he is the source and sustainer of all things. We'll learn how powerful he's all-knowing, he's ever-present, uh, and all-powerful. The three O's, omniscient, omnipotent, and omnipresent. Of course, he's good, morally perfect. The word holy is so morally perfect, he's separated and sacred from everything else. He's compassionate. His character, we find in the Bible who this supreme being is, that he's compassionate, he's gracious, uh, he's abounding in love, and he created us for relationship with him. So we don't need an argument about his existence, and we'll find out a lot about him, but the Bible will say it's a foolish thing for anybody to say there's no God. That's Psalm 14. And verse one, and and why the Bible doesn't go into the whole God thing, how did God get here, and all of that? It's because, as I said, it is assumed from the Bible that everybody knows. Now it says there in Romans chapter one, God has made His existence obvious to all of us. It goes on to say that people can clearly see from the awesome creation around them, by looking at the earth, the sun, moon, and stars, they can see God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, and his divine nature, so that nobody has an excuse for not knowing God. He's given us a conscience. You know what? what one of the smartest scientists who's ever lived, I mean, he was discovering the laws of gravity, Isaac Newton, Right? And all these uh, beautiful theorems and theories about uh, movement and motion. And he said, in absence of anything else, if all you had to look at was the human hand and the thumb, he said, we would know that there is a God just from the design of the thumb. It's just fascinating to look around and see a well-ordered world. And, and, and Psalm 19, of course, says that nobody needs to say there's a God. The universe is screaming it. He says, the heavens declare the glory of God. Day after day, they're pouring forth speech. Night after night, they display the knowledge of God. It says there's no language where their voice is not heard. In other words, creation the stars are blinking at night and they're saying there is a God. There is a God. There is a God. So most of the world, human conscience, creation, knows in general, of course, I'm a spiritual being. A spiritual being must have created me, right? And so the question and why we see all these world religions is because of this fact that everybody knows. And so out come the ladders as we have referred to in the past, ladders that man create to, to, to reach this God that we all know exists, to find out what does he require? How can I please him, right? And so I just want to point out, as you open up and you find this supreme being, what's his deal? How do we please him? What do we have to do? How do we know him? Well, it's very, very different from all the other ladders, they both have ladders. Christianity has a ladder. The Bible shows a ladder. And the world religions have a ladder. But listen, there's a, there's a difference. Let's start with Islam. Islam in the ladder you climb, you have to climb at least five rungs. And those rungs will include prayer uh, at appointed times, faith, a pilgrimage, charity, and fasting. And the bottom line in Islam is that your good deeds better outweigh your bad deeds or you will perish. That's the philosophy, which is very different from the God of the Bible. Now, in uh, Buddhism, Buddhism is kind of tricky because there's no real God. In fact, you find out that they believe in pantheism, that everything and everybody sort of is an extension of God. I had a Buddhist, I was sharing the gospel with, he says, wait, 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 wait. Don't, do you not realize that you are God? And I said, hold on, I'm calling my wife. <laughs> I got to let her in on this. <laughs> this could be very useful. <laughs> he said, brother, he says, look within. I said, you want to freak me out? <laughs> 
You want me to get freaked out? I, if I look within, I, that's why I know I need a savior. Uh, evidence of that. And so, but, the, but there's an eight, if you want to be a Buddhist, there's a, there, are, there are rungs. There are eight full path to be a Buddhist. Now, let's check out Hinduism. Now, we go to India every year, so I'm talking with my friends there, right? There are eight, there, so, excuse me, there are 300 million gods. And I asked some of my Indian friends, well, how did you come up with that number? And they said, nobody really knows. <laughs> 300 million, let's just say there's a lot. Now, if you want to become a Hindu, here's what WikiHow tells you to do. <laughs> it comes in handy. <laughs> Number one, if you want to be a Hindu, you're going to participate in puja. Puja is uh, the ritualistic worship of Hinduism, and it, it involves cleansing with idols and things like that. Number two, you need to uh, learn proper asanas, A-S-A-N-A-S, which is yoga. You must learn how to do yoga and to meditate because that is the posture for Hindu worship. Thirdly, you have to commit to improving your karma. Uh, you don't want to come back lower, right? And the fourth thing is you have to attend festivals and there are some dietaries, do's and don'ts. This is very different. Uh, and, and then like Shintoism, I spent four, almost four years, we did, we, we were there for, as missionaries for four years. And uh, Shintoism, you got to worship at the shrine uh, and, and worship and pray to the local deities. And then every good uh, person in Shintoism, you have to have what's called in Japanese a butsudon. Butsudon is one of those altars when you go to a Chinese restaurant, and this is China and Vietnam and Asian, all right? Uh, and you see the altar with the tangerines on them and maybe a beer, if it was. <laughs> uh, they are leaving offerings and worshiping their ancestors. So if you want to be a good uh, Shinto worshiper, you would have to do things like that. And having amulets to chase away the evil uh, influences in your life wouldn't hurt. Uh, and, and so, listen, when you open up the Bible, I really honestly don't know where you get the statement, all religions are the same, because they can't all be the same if they're different. <laughs> right? Because you're not going to find anything like you'll start reading. And here's what you'll start reading about this all-powerful, all-knowing, loving God. What does he require? Nothing. It's all about saying nobody can qualify. The, this is Old Testament. There's not one person who's good. No, not one. But I am coming down to save you. And so the opening understanding of the greatest being is that this greatest being, what does he require? How does he relate to people? He sees himself as the redeemer. Something has happened. He needs to save us. And that will be the theme from cover to cover. And on every page, how you approach him, even in the Old Testament, you better just have one thing in mind and one thing only a substitute for your sin. That is what is required. Your wrong, your weakness, your sins on the substitute, which is pointing ahead to what he keeps promising of a Christ. Christ is the Greek form of Messiah, Messiah, <laughs> Messiah, which in the Hebrew, Meshiach, that's where that happened there, and, <laughs> just so you know. And, and, and so, meaning Savior. So in the meantime, make sure you have a substitute. That's all I require. Never inspected you when you came for worship. Only your substitute. There was a long checklist. Got to be healthy, can't be blind, got to be unblemished, check, 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 check. Had nothing to do with you. The substitute is that perfect, pointing one day, I'll fix this permanently. So that's the God we get to know, this greatest being. And, and what's prompting this plan to intervene 
is, is, is love. And so let's take a look at that. For God so loved the world. So the rescue plan that's being prompted by love, John 3.16 assumes that you are already familiar with why we need to be saved, what prompted the heart of God in love to, to intervene. And so it's good to recall what happened to prompt this amazing love of God. Uh, most of you know that for many years I worked as a teacher in the East Bay, and I was reading at my, on my break in the teacher's lounge the concert costed times. And on the front page, there was this really uh, terrible, tragic story. It had a happy ending. But uh, a dad and his son were playing in their front yard after several weeks of rains. They were kicking a ball around, playing soccer. And suddenly, out of nowhere, with no warning, the earth just opened up a sinkhole, and the boy went headlong into the sinkhole. It's quite a pretty deep one. But he could still communicate with his boy, who's down there crying out from the darkness, Dad, Dad, save me, help me. And the roots of the trees were all exposed, and they looked like snakes to him. So he kept saying, Dad, there are snakes everywhere. There are snakes everywhere. Get me out of here. Now, I'm telling you what. In the wake of that tragedy, that father is going to do superhuman things to get to that son and save him. Do you think one thought went through his mind, oh, no, I'm afraid of snakes? Or, or, or oh, no, it's dark in there. Or I could get, you know, I could get killed. You know, no, 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 no. So, so the Bible talks about this suffering servant right from the beginning, this Messiah God who would come, and here's the ladder. Not up the ladder, but he would come down the ladder and do for us what we could never do. So, so right away we know that a prompting of love is what's going on. So back in the first three chapters, things got off to an excellent start, and you know creation was called paradise. We can't even imagine a world where, I mean, husband and wife were in perfect harmony, and they walked with God with no problem, nothing in between. A world without sin or chaos or, or violence, just the... the the Bible calls Eden paradise. And so it's beyond our understanding. But paradise got lost, as you will recall. And here's how it happened. Love demands free will. It really does. Think about it. I mean, if, if you <laughs> tell somebody you love them, but it's at gunpoint, I mean, you know, that's not really love, right? And so... <laughs> To express love, God had to make an option in there of choice. And so he said, listen, you can eat from every tree you can see. And they were beautiful, and there were many of them, and there was a variety of them. And he said, fair game, anything you want, except one. Let's just, just say, there's a boundary around that. Don't go there. And every time you walk by and say, no, it's forbidden, you're expressing your free love for me, of course there had to be a test like that. And so every time they walked by, there was no question in their hearts. Just like when you're married, you say, I do, I pledge my life to Barb, right? And that means I don't pledge my life to all others. And so I, in making those choices, that's how I express love because I have free will. Well, you know what happened. Enter, God had an enemy. He's our enemy as well. And he came in with the lie, still lies the same way. And he says, did God really say you can't eat from any other trees? And she has to say, well, actually, no, he didn't say that. He said we could eat from all of the trees. But he did say, of one, don't go near it, don't eat 
of it. And then he adds insult to injury by saying, oh, I'll tell you the real reason he doesn't want you to eat it. Now, come on, you know, you'll be so smart. You'll be smart like him and he can't have that, you know, come on. Everybody's doing it, which doesn't work. Because <laughs> nobody was. <laughs> That's the only time he couldn't use that line. <laughs> she eats. She goes to her husband. He eats worse sin. And God blames him because he eats eyes wide open, not deceived in full knowledge. And he said, the day you disconnect from the source of life, the day you pull the plug on the thing that sustains you, you're going to die. You can't join the enemy and expect to be blessed with the flow of life. You will die. And what happened in the garden, if you allow me to use a metaphor, is a ginormous sinkhole opened up and God's boy went in, not as an accident, but because of a consequence of his own rebellion, he toppled in. And who was in him? You were in him, the Bible says. We were already programmed in their loins, as the King James says. We were in them. And when they died spiritually, they didn't fall over and die. They will in a thousand years. And most people say a thousand years living. To them, that was a tragedy. They just had eternal life. And now they're going to slowly reap the consequences of death. But that was not the worst part. It was the spiritual disconnect. And then the union of two trespassers, because that's what they did. And that's why sins are called trespassing. It's stepping over the line. Their union brings out Cain. And Cain is born with the same instinct to trespass. And Cain, the first born of trespassers is a murderer. God the Father cries out, Adam, where are you with a heart of love? And when God asks a question, it's not because he doesn't know the answer. It's because he's trying to teach us something. What happened? Where are you? I'm hiding because I heard you and I'm afraid. I'm freaked out. I'm terrorized. I pulled the plug on God. So the whole Bible is about this loving response to God looking at his boy and his girl and us in them. And in God's wisdom, one way you could look at this and say, listen, it wasn't, <laughs> I wasn't there. I didn't sin. And I, why, why? Romans 5.12 says, by one man's sin, Death came into the world, and death spread to everybody because everybody sinned, right? And so we were in him. So one way of looking at it is the mercy of God who says, okay, listen, instead of letting them all be under condemnation because we were in them, let them all be born into a fallen world, and I'll send a Savior down in the midst of them and lead a way out for anybody, whosoever will. That will make it fair, won't it? Because nobody on that day will ever say, well, I wasn't even there. No, 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 no. You got to be born. And you got to hear the gospel. And then you got to choose. That's fairness. That's one reason he let it happen. It's because now, instead of dying in Adam, you have a choice. You can die in Adam. Or there's this new Adam, the second Adam, as the New Testament calls Jesus, the new creation. And so it's a heart of love. Let me say before I move on, I've heard this conversation before. Listen, I wasn't there in the garden. I didn't sin. It wasn't my idea. I didn't ask to be here. I don't even want to talk about this. Uh, I said to him, listen, let me tell you a story. A guy wanted to get around the bay you know, it usually takes the bridge. The bridge is closed. They're working on it. He doesn't know. Okay, there's a sign up. You, you can't use the bridge today. The only way, if you really got to go, you got to use a ferry. So he goes to the ferry, <laughs> you know. One, he's left his wallet at work 
And so people are honking the horn, saying, what's going on? They get out. Come on, man. He goes, I left my wallet. I can't back up here. Listen, dude, I'll spot you the five bucks. Get in and go. So he goes on to the ferry. He parks. He's enjoying his little snack. They're halfway out. And suddenly, (laughs) sirens and red alerts and all kinds of things. The ferry is taking on water. It's beginning to sink. And everybody's manning the lifeboats and the life jackets. And he's told, hey, man, come on. The boat's sinking. Get in the lifeboat. Put on your life vest. And he says, are you kidding me? What kind of day is this? I didn't ask to be here. You know, I, 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 didn't, I never take the ferry. <laughs> I take the bridge. But for some reason, I have nothing to do with. The bridge is out, and I happen to see the sign. And some guy, I wasn't even going to take the ferry. Some guy said, take the ferry. It's right there. So I pull up. I didn't even pay my own way to get on this boat. (laughs) I shouldn't be here. I didn't want to be here. I didn't plan to be here. And then I say, newsflash, you're on a sinking boat. (laughs) Get in the lifeboat. Put the left jacket on, and then we can talk about your emotional challenges. (laughs) About how this thing works out. Well, you mean to tell me that anyone who doesn't put their trust in Jesus is going to perish? Oh, I I just... Sir, if that is the case, does it make sense for you to perish too? If you're a believer... Get in the boat, be part of the answer, help others, and then we'll all figure out what the truth is. But get yourself in the boat because there's a God, our Savior. He is a love for you that's demonstrated on that cross, the Son's love. Forget about it. You couldn't even recognize that Jesus was a human being from the swelling and the bruising and the bleeding. And that is all tied to love for the son that he sees in the sinkhole. That's you, sir. Never forget it. So we move on that he gave his only begotten son the greatest gift. Now, I like my hearers to know who Jesus is. Please don't think of Jesus as a good example or a nice rabbi or, you know, a really holy man. Please, no, don't. Let me, let me help you understand because in the Old Testament, this God, the greatest being, starts to talk in terms of confusion. It's like you're, you're sending someone, but then you're saying you're coming. So, and, and then you're using divine titles. This, this wonderful counselor, almighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace, born of a virgin. Oh, that, that sounds like God. So which is it? Who is Jesus? How is he related to God? Because he calls God his father. Well, let me tell you, Genesis chapter 1, the first sentence of the Bible gives you the hint. And if you knew the Hebrew, you would begin to understand. In the beginning, God created heaven and earth. The Hebrew says, in the beginning, the gods, plural, created heaven and earth, singular verb. So later on in the chapter, it says, let us make man in our image. I talk to Jewish people all the time. I say, hey, I'm Jewish. I've, just, I've never knew the answer to this question. I do now that I'm a Christian. Who's us? <laughs> let us make man in our image? Who's, who's he talking about? Because it's the gods. Their most important prayer in Judaism, the Shema. Hear, O Israel. The Lord is one. In the Hebrew, hero Israel, the gods is one. That's called a collective singular. That means like the committee, lots of people in there, is meeting, right? And so what you know right from the start, that God is a collective plural, but he's one. So we, we come up in the second century with the word trinity, which just says, hey, in the book, we see God, the Father, acting as God. We see the Son acting as God and claiming to be God, lots of places, and the Holy Spirit being called God. So then Jesus appears and clears it up for us. 
as his baptizing them in the name, one name, of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So, my friend, the latter, the one coming down, is God the Son, who was with the Father in the beginning. He said, glorify me, Father God, with the glory that we shared before there was a world. Jesus was not born of a man, but of a woman and conceived of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, you have perfect union. You have what's born on Christmas Day is the God-man. And you shall name him Emmanuel. He shall be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. How can Jesus be called God with us? He is God with us. So what does that do for me? It tells me, wow, the grandest gift is a sacrifice, not of some guy who has sins of his own, but the perfect, holy, eternal creator of the world. See, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, they have different roles, but they are one. Right? So the, the, the Father, I wrote this down, the Father created a plan, Jesus implements the plan, and the Holy Spirit administers the plan. Nobody understands the, the depth of the Trinity and the mystery of it. But you know what? Good news. You can ask God when you see him to explain it to you. <laughs> All right? Because good news, now Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 27 says that if you're breathing oxygen, you have an appointment to meet God face to face. Hebrews 9, 27, it is appointed to every human being to die and then to be evaluated by God. And so when you get there, ask him about that, all right? I don't know. I think that won't be something you'll be interested in at the time. But yeah, we got the son of God. Doesn't that make sense, though? Come on. That's why I can look at a dead body and say, hey, I know you're dead, but, you know, I'm telling you, get up. And, and he gets up, right? And, and when there's a hurricane, uh, you can say, why are you guys freaked out? You know, because we're drowning, right? And he goes, oh, shh, peace. It says, be muzzled. He tells it to... Shut up, you know, <laughs> just, just, just be quiet. And then we're drowning. And they all look at each other and say, who is that man? Oh, he's the God man. So it makes sense. But for me, he's going to say, greater love has no man than this. On the night he was betrayed, he, at the Last Supper, he said, I just want to tell you, there is no higher love shown than somebody who will lay down his life for a friend, Paul the Apostle is going to take it up a notch. And he's going to say, hey, someone might possibly dare to die for a good man. You might find the courage to do that. But God demonstrates his love that's on top of that love that while we were yet sinners at our worst, spitting and plucking and whipping and flogging, and crucifying him, that's when he says, Father, forgive them. They don't realize the scope of what they're doing. That's the kind of love the Son has that shares with the Father and the Holy Spirit. Time to move on. It sounds really cool, but who will qualify? Wouldn't it be nice to know that you qualify for this, right? Well, the widest invitation and the easiest escape. Now, you'll often hear some criticism about Christianity as it being too, uh, you know, exclusive, you know. We're the only ones who have it right and only people who believe in Jesus will perish. What about the rest of the world? What about this and that and the other thing? Well, just let me say that in, in, in God's economy, he invites whosoever. It means anyone from any religion, from any nation, from any socioeconomic position, from any morality or any lifestyle. No matter what you've done, what you're doing at the time when you're hearing the gospel, if you're having a change of heart and wish it could be different and wish you could be qualified, you will be qualified simply because you're a whosoever. 
You're a whosoever, man. That When God says whosoever, man, he just opened the floodgates. Let me show you. Because the whole world thinks, well, I got it like, the, like Islam thinks. I got to do enough good deeds so it outweighs the bad so that on that day I'll get to go to heaven and not perish, right? That is not the Bible. The Bible says no way. It's never been about good or bad. Never, never, never. Let me show you a parable from Matthew 22 that will blow your mind. Jesus telling a story, and he's telling a story that helps people understand uh, the Christian church inviting people, heaven's a big party, the host is God, okay? You get the metaphor? The kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. There we go. He sent his servants, believers, to those who have been invited to the banquet to tell them they're coming, you know, gospel, 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 but they refuse to come. Then he sent more servants, tell those who have been invited that I prepare my dinner. My oxen, my fattened cattle have been prepared and everything's ready. Come to the wedding banquet. Joy, this is heaven. But they paid no attention, made their excuses. Off they went to his field and to business, yada, yada, yada. Then the host says, check this out. This will blow your mind. Then the host says, go now to the street corners and, int- and invite to the banquet anyone, whosoever you find. So the servants went out into the streets and gathered all the people they could, the bad as well as the good. Now, cons- uh, this is a relative term here. The, the, the Bible teaches everyone's fallen short and technically bad because we're all sinners, but there are some who are more morally inclined than others. There are worse sinners than others. But he's saying, doesn't matter because it's not based on behavior. It's based on the sacrifice and receiving what God is doing. You're not qualifying by behavior. You're qualifying by the posture of your heart to have a change of heart and let someone else pay the the way. So he says, invite the good and the bad. And the wedding hall was filled. Never again think, well, you're going to be good to go to heaven. Good people don't go to heaven. Reconciled people, saved people, people who accepted the gospel, they go to heaven. Bad people don't go to hell. If the Bible already said, sorry, heads up, Bad news, offense coming, you're all bad, right? Because you've all sinned. You know, I, I say this all the time to someone who says, I'm basically a good guy. So I go, okay, let's, let's talk about this. He goes, yeah, let's do it. So I say, okay, would you agree that the Ten Commandments are good, a good standard for, you know, being a good guy? Yes, I do. Okay, thou shalt not lie. You know, have you ever lied? Well, you know, who doesn't lie? I'm not asking for a general population number here. I just want to know, by God's standard, do you lie? Have you ever lied? Yeah, of course. What do you call that? A liar. Okay, let's go on. Okay, that, don't misuse God's name. Have you ever misused the name just for a long? God this, God this, Lord Jesus that. Have you ever done that? That's called blasphemy. Yes, I've done that. Oh, so you've, you know what that's called? Blasphemy. So, so you're a blasphemer. Well, not all the time. Well, okay. So you're a sometimes blasphemer. And then, okay, have you ever taken anything from anybody ever in your whole life? Well, who have? Well, sir, just answer the question. <laughs> have you ever stolen anything? He goes, yeah, yeah, I've stolen. So what does that make you? A thief. Okay, so, so by your own confession, you're telling me that you're a thief who has... Uh, lied and blasphemed God. Oh, should we go to the lusting or not? He goes, no, 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 no. I'm a bad person. I'm a bad person. <laughs> Invite them all. Are you a terrorist? Dude, this guy, what's his name? I wrote it down. I hope I can find it here. Kamal Salim. He was a terrorist. From the time he was four, they indoctrinated him. And he got saved. He's a Christian. 
You know why he's saved? Because he's a whosoever. He's a whosoever, right? Okay, no, you're a terrorist. No, I'm not. I'm a whosoever. I'm a whosoever. Paul the Apostle killing people like us, dragging off people to prison. Why did he get in? He's a whosoever. Mary Magdalene, why does she become the first witness of the resurrection? Not Peter, James, and John. You know who the hero of the story beside Jesus is on Resurrection Sunday? It's Mary Magdalene, and the Bible says she was immoral and had seven demons. How does an immoral, insignificant homewrecker who's immoral and demon-possessed become a hero in the resurrection story and honored? She's a whosoever. She's a whosoever. And guess what? I have news for you. You're a whosoever. Oh, man, I just had a guy. I invited him to Easter. I invited all of Santa Rosa. I'm surprised <laughs> they're not here. You know, they always ask me, well, what's the pastor like? I go, he's all right, but I love his wife. <laughs> and, they, and they always say, tell me you're the pastor. <laughs> I forgot what I was going to tell you. What was I going to tell you? Tyler, tell me. I know that part. Oh, that guy. If I came to church on Sunday, the whole church would explode. I said, sir, don't flatter yourself. I said, Jesus exploded himself for all your nasty undertakings. And so that when you walk in, it's not about you. It's about what your sins did to Jesus and how he conquered them on your behalf and rose from the dead for you as your suffering servant. So come on in. The water's fine. Amen. Amen. We would have all blown the church up, right, with all of our sins, right? Some a louder bang than others. True. <laughs> this is dangerous weapon. Uh, and can I just add, and we'll move on. Thank you for the, that, the easiest escape. Oh, my word, the horror of perishing, the torment of knowing that all it took was a change of mind. Metanoeo in the Greek is the word repent. It just means change, meta, you know, changing, metamorphosis. Change your mind, change your heart, that's all. And I'll give you everything for nothing. Show me that in a world religion. You get the whole shebang, thrones, eternal life, paradise, forever and ever with God for nothing. Just a change of mind. Two thieves next to Jesus. Matthew and Mark's account say they're both hurling insults at the beginning. At 9 a.m., they're both mad, they're both dying, and they're both going to give it to Jesus, and they did. About 11.30, 12 o'clock, Jesus has been talking. One of them's been paying attention. The sun stops shining. He says, uh-oh, <laughs> one of them. And the other one just says, hey, Mr. Savior. Hey, save yourself, and while you're at it, save us too. And dude number one says, man, what are you doing? We're dying. That's not very smart. I He's innocent, obviously. Hello, <laughs> the sun's not shining. He's the real deal. We're, we deserve this. He's confessed his guilt. He's putting trust in Jesus. He said, and he just looks over and he has a change of heart. He says, Jesus, with this kingdom that you've been talking about, just remember me, remember me. He's dying. And Jesus says, today, this day, you're going to be with me in paradise. He wasn't the kind of thief who just took your, your bike. He took your bike and stabbed your sister because she was trying to get it from him. You don't kill guys for just taking your bike. You put them on the cross because they're heinous criminals and murderers. And Jesus says to a heinous murderer who really killed some kid, and all he said was, whoops, got the wrong guy. Sorry about that. Uh, would you remember me? Because he's scared. I'm about to die and face the judge. And this guy, oh, he looks like the real deal. I better do something because I'm afraid. Some people say, you're just a Christian because you're afraid of going to hell. Yeah. 
You got a problem with that? <laughs> yeah, you just step back from the cobra because you're just afraid of him. Yeah, yeah. You step back from the railing because you think, you know, if you get too close, you might fall over. Yeah, fear is a God-given gift to save us, to help if that's what it takes. And so, yeah, easy. So he says, listen, whoever believes will not perish. What does that mean? Do you know how many people have told me, I believe in God? What they meant was, I believe there is a God. That disqualifies for being saving faith. Saving faith is you believe, and in the Greek, it's awkward. We don't say it in English. You believe into, you believe onto, you fall into. It's a personal coming into contact with Christ whose spirit comes in and you, you're changed. You have a new presence, a new mind, a new relationship. That's the part I didn't get. 19 years old, people tell me about Christ all the time. My dad, till he was blue in the face, a new convert from his Jewish life to his Christian life. Telling me all the time, but I, did, I just thought it was like dad doing a new religion. I didn't understand that you open your heart and the Holy Spirit comes in and changes you. It's so easy. He says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord, and you're trusting Repenting and, and trusting, same idea there. You're just turning. God, I give you my life. Wow. That's beautiful. And, and he goes on. He says, should not perish the most dramatic rescue. Phew. And uh, then in positive terms, have everlasting life. What could be more valuable than that? And with those re remarks, we're going to uh, wrap up our time. So, the most dramatic rescue is put negatively perishing. Now, the, the possibility of perishing exists because he's telling you how not to. So I paid for all of your sins. This is how you would not perish. But if you don't believe in the son who paid for all of your sins, then conversely, the truth would be that you perish. So perishing is, is kind of implied in the very verse. And of course, Jesus is very clear about it. What does it mean to perish? Uh, the word is terrible. In, in, even in the Greek, it means to be utterly ruined or destroyed with eternal ramifications. Um, you know, it's Easter Sunday morning. I'm going to tread lightly here because I think that you get it. it to perish is... is uh, doesn't mean to, to slip and fall off a cliff, as terrible as that would be, or to crash in a plane or to drown in the ocean. It's worse because it's standing before God, what is called a great white throne, and the books are open, and every single sin, if they're not paid for, they have to be paid for. So there, there are two plans, the pre-pay plan, where Christ paid it all, or self-pay. And, and so those who go before God and say, I didn't need your help, no thank you, not interested, I'll pay, I'm basically a good person, then the books are open and every sin has to be paid for. That's perishing is the, the part of being separated. And the Bible calls that the second death. So in other words, if you're born twice, you die once. If you're born physically and then you're born again spiritually, you got hooked up to life that can never die. When you die physically, that spiritual life can never die. That's called eternal life. But if you're only born once, you will die twice. You will die physically, the Bible says, and then you will perish if you have not been reconciled to life while you were living. In other words, you have to become alive while you're alive. Because if you die dead, you perish. Does that make sense? Good. Because I got a little confused there myself, <laughs> to be honest with you. So, yeah, perishing. Listen, uh, one writer said this, using an, an illustration. One day when Vice President Calvin Coolidge was presiding over the Senate, one senator angry told his colleague to go straight to hell. 
the offended senator appealed to the vice president with great indignity. How dare he tell me that I should go straight to hell? I want you to do something about that. And Calvin looked up from the book he had been reading and leafing through while listening to their heated exchange. And he said, I've been looking through the rule book, he said, and you don't have to go. <laughs> the rule book, Bible, don't have to go. Listen, that's the worst part. See, that's the heart of God, that you don't go. Listen to this. Hell is the greatest compliment God has ever paid to the dignity of human freedom. Hell was not made for man, but for the devil and his angels. And for, and can gladly accommodate any foolish person who would link arms with the evil one, reject the goodness of God, and want to snub the gracious gift that God has given. It can accommodate those people. But one other writer said this, no one who is ever in hell will be able to say God, to God, you put me here. And no one who is in heaven will be able to say, I put myself here. I just think that's a beautiful thing. Jesus said, listen, is it your eye? Is it your hand? Is it your foot? that keeps you from the gospel and from me, then he says, here's what I suggest. Gouge that, if it's near and dear to you like an eyeball, gouge it out, get rid of it, because Jesus speaking now, Matthew chapter five, wouldn't you rather go to heaven missing an eye than for your whole body to be plunged, Jesus' words, into hell? Yikes. But God's heart is, says, don't do it. Let me suffer for you. I'll pay your way. That's the heart of love. Don't do it. And then finally, the most precious, priceless possession. I mean, what would you give, really, to avoid hell if you think of it as the Bible has it, eternal and terrible and all of that misery, uh, and live forever in a place that Jesus called paradise? What would you do for that? What, how much is that worth to you? If, you know, if he said, you know, you have to climb Mount Everest barefoot or swim to Hawaii on your own, I, I'm, I, you know, it wouldn't work for me, but I would start working out. I would try. I mean, if that's your only, don't laugh so hard there. With you, you. I would try. Wouldn't you try? You'd have to try, right? Because what a terrible fate. But you know what? everlasting life, free. How does he describe it? Well, it's eyes have not seen nor ear heard nor has it entered the heart of man or the mind of man, the things that God has prepared for those who love him. A woman I was sharing the gospel with, uh, she said, you know what? I don't even want to live forever. I kept saying, you can live forever. You'll never die. Eternal life. Can you imagine? She said, I don't even want that. I don't find that attractive. I, I said, of course not. When you're paying PG bills and having to go to Kaiser and, sorry, I don't mean, or, or Memorial or wherever it is. You know. And you have to live with who you live with and, and deal with what you have to deal with. Who wants to live around here? This is a cursed fallen world, but the Redeemer has come to break the curse and even the earth will be changed and restored. So you'll have a restored earth, like the garden he talks about. Jesus talks about renewal. He talks about a new body that will be as glorious as his resurrected body for those who believe on his name. He talks about a place where God is walking around in and we're dwelling with him. No more crying, no more mourning, no more sorrow, no more pain. He says, nothing unclean will enter that place. There'll be no violence or no, no war. This is a kingdom that God is coming and it says that only righteousness and goodness can dwell. We can't even understand that. We get freaked out like, I'm going to be bored. What are we going to do there? Yeah, right? Yeah, trust me. You will not be bored. <laughs> I promise you, that's one thing you will not be in heaven. And the amazing thing, 
It's yours for the asking. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for your great love. Thank you for the simple truth of John 3.16, that you loved us so much. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever (laughs) believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. We thank you so much, God. In Christ's name, amen. You have been listening to The Rock Podcast. Our regular services are held on Wednesday nights at 6.30 and Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you would like to learn more, please visit our website at calvarytherock.org.